news just here recently, locally, that residential development has caused some habitat destruction that has led to coyote displacement that therein means that you need to look out for your small pets. Why? That's a threat. That's a threat. Let's say your child comes home from school one day and gives news to you about a bully. You need to talk with said child about self-defense. Why? That's a threat. Let's say you are moving down the highway and you realize that that tractor trailer that's sitting there in the lane beside you is beginning to drift just a little bit. So you accelerate to create more distance between you and that tractor trailer. Why? Because that's a threat. It's understandable, it's right. Uh, when you can assess uh, a threat rightly, you need to respond in the, in the right way to be sure. What about threats to the gospel? What about threats to the gospel? Perhaps overt hostility, maybe it's more covert, more hidden hostility. Maybe it's outright, in-your-face persecution, opposition to the message of the gospel. Or perhaps maybe it's just pressure. I said just pressure, but pressure to conform in how you think and how you live. How do we respond to threats to the gospel? Or following up with that, how do we respond when we see others in their own context where the gospel is threatened? How do we respond there in that way, in that setting? That's worth thinking about. It's very much worth thinking about. It's where our text is taking us this morning. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, this is the fourth in a series of four messages in this little mini-series, Praying with Paul, uh, learning about prayer from the Apostle Paul. So if you're trying to find Colossians, well, of course, it's on the screen. But also, if you're trying to find that, it's um, after the Gospels, after Acts, after Romans, after the Corinthian letters, then Gen, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians are the first chapter. First chapter is Colossians. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Hear now God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it, is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a, fellow, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, let's pray together for just a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul, for 
the ministry of his life, um, the missionary journeys that you sent him out on, the letters that he sent uh, to churches in those parts of the world that were touched, influenced, transformed uh, there in their local context by the power of the gospel and the moving of the Spirit. And we ask, oh Jesus, that you would do that now, even in our own context right now, that the power of the gospel and the moving of the Spirit would be evident in us as we are learning more here this morning about prayer. There's a lot here in this passage. We want to focus in on what we can learn from Paul there on this topic. We ask that you'd be so merciful, O oh Lord, please. As we've been saying over these last several weeks, we find ourselves just feeling so much like the disciples as they came to you and asked you, to teach them to pray. Help us to be humble enough to ask and humble enough to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me give you some background to this letter. It's, it's fairly important as we are delving into this topic. So some background to the letter. Um, this is in the mid-50s, that is the first century A.D., uh, it's likely when this church was, was birthed, when it was founded. Paul during the second missionary journey, is about 120 miles west of Colossae. That's the name of the city. He's in Ephesus for three years. And while he's there, just reading between the lines from what we can see here between Acts and now this book here, a man named Epaphras was visiting in, in Ephesus. Epaphras, yeah, I know. Epaphras is there in Ephesus. Epaphras is a resident, a citizen of Colossae. We don't, perhaps on business, not quite sure why he's there, but there he is. He comes into contact with the Apostle Paul. He hears the message of the gospel. He embraces it, and realizing truly how good a news it is, he goes back to his hometown in Colossae, and Epaphras, taking it to his people, taking it to his fellow Colossians, that seems to be, in the Lord's grace and providence, the birth of the church, the birth of this church there in the city of Colossae. Colossae was not a big city, not a, not, not, certainly not compared to some of the other places that we read of in the New Testament. It was, however, a market center, a lot of going, a lot of coming. It sat on, on, a, on a trade route, so there was a, a lot of folks in and out there. I should add also that it was a pluralistic place, meaning... A lot of different faiths, a lot of different worldviews, a lot of different ideas are there within in that particular cultural context. Paul is now writing this letter just a few years later. I said it was birthed in the mid-50s. This is probably around 62, 63 AD. It's just a few years later. Paul is now writing to this church. It hasn't taken long, but they are now really struggling just deeply challenged by some dangerous teaching that is threatening not only to infect their growth and their health, but really their very survival and certainly their mission. So, so dangerous is, is this teaching. Now, it's hard to know exactly what the teaching was because we're listening to one side of the conversation, right? Uh, scholars through the years have speculated perhaps it was an early form of, of Gnosticism that perhaps, and we can talk, if you want to ask me about what that is at the lunch, that's fine. Or perhaps it was more of a sense of, of something along the lines of Jewish 
syncretism. It's, we're further out from Palestine, from Israel, that area, and the further out you go, the more fast and loose people were willing to play in the synagogues with things that they were willing to adapt to and believe in. Could have been that. Likely, it is something of an admixture of Jewish beliefs and local, uh, rural, pagan, folk religion sort of enmeshed together. Whatever it was, we know this. Whatever it was, we know this. It created a tragic and dangerous de-emphasis on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Whatever this heresy was, whatever this dangerous teaching was, whatever its nature, whatever its specifics, it clearly, when you read through the book of Colossians, and you can sense what, where Paul is, is going and what he is emphasizing. He's pushing back against a de-emphasizing of the supremacy of Jesus. Okay, that's their pluralistic context. Now let's come back over here to our context and think about our own pluralistic context. Where are we today in the 21st century West? Now I'm going to simplify it with just, just three ways of thinking about this, three M's. The first is, here's one of the things that we're surrounded in in this pluralistic context. One is a worldview, a faith, a religion that it could best be described as moralism, meaning live as right as you can and hope that the scales balance out in the end, okay? A lot of churches are like that. A lot of religions, other religions are, are like that, okay? So that's moralism. Another would be materialism, meaning live however you feel because in the end it isn't going to matter because this is all there is. Okay, so moralism or materialism, or here's a word, the best way I know how to describe it is middleism. Middleism. Live and let live because everybody's right, and it'll all wash out in the end, so it's just fine. It's just fine. Moralism, materialism, middleism. Every one of those, whether the adherence to those ways of thinking and living, understand it or believe it or not, it doesn't matter. This is true. Every one of those are faiths. Every one of those are worldviews, ways of seeing, ways of engaging with the world. They are exclusive ways of living, as every worldview and faith is. Whether you say it is or not, it doesn't matter. It's an exclusive perspective. Um, and that perspective is comes with it a presumption of being right and a desire to pressure, whether soft or hard, others to agree with you. And in all of that, here's the commonality with Colossae and whatever was going on there, a de-emphasis in the supremacy of Jesus. A de-emphasis in the supremacy of Jesus. Okay, what do you do with that? All right. How, do we, how should we respond to such challenges to the gospel? That is a challenge. I hope you understand. That is a challenge to the gospel, whether you're in Colossae or Clarksville. Those are challenges to the gospel. How are followers of Jesus, how are disciples of Jesus called to respond? Well, first of all, by not pretending it's not there. That would be one. But where we're heading here this morning, as Paul is showing us here in Colossians, is the Lord calls us to meet challenges to the gospel with prayer shaped by the gospel. The Lord calls us to meet challenges to the gospel with prayer shaped by the gospel, especially, in particular, in this case, as we consider others in their context who are being challenged in their faith. 
Well, how do you see this? How do you see this? Well, this gospel prayer. It's gospel prayer. It's what we're talking about here. How do you see this in the context of Paul's writing here, the context of his prayer, and the content of it as well, the two points you see in there in your outline. So let's look at this, the first part, the context of this prayer. What do we learn here in terms of uh, the background, the backdrop, the, the setting, all, all of that? Who were these people that Paul is writing to? What is Paul's association relation uh, to them? There's actually no obvious, immediately obvious tie between Paul and these people there in Colossae. He's never met them. They've never met him. He's only heard of them or heard about them. You can see that there in verse 4. We always thank God the Father, this verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith. And then you skip down to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So they're, they're not, you can't really say that they're friends. There's no obvious tie there, but you certainly can say that there's a deep spiritual bond. There's clearly a deep spiritual bond. If you back it up now to verses 1 and 2, we didn't read that earlier, but listen to what he says in the introduction to the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. They may not have been friends, but they were certainly family. They may not have been friends in the sense of there being a direct you know, tie, but they were clearly family in the deepest, most profound sense. And because of that, when Paul heard of their need, he was committed to pray, to intercede on their behalf. Some years ago, when we lived in Peoria, the house that we lived in was a split-level house. And I can remember on one occasion, uh, we had finally got those little urchins to bed. And uh, they're settled down, so we thought for the night. And Sarah and I were downstairs trying to settle in ourselves to watch a movie. And I heard, I heard that sound, oh, that beloved sound of the little pitter-pat of the feet coming down those steps. So I got up in great compassion. No, actually, it was irritation. I got up with a flash of irritation. I go charging out the room. I round that corner, coming to the bottom of the steps, and there I am met by our son, who's all four or five years old at the time, who says these words to me. Daddy, Hannah needs you. Here's what's going on. We can't hear her. His bedroom is right beside hers. He can hear her crying. And we can't hear it. So this little guy comes downstairs to get us. And here's a translating what he really is saying to me. Daddy, my sister, your daughter needs you. You hear? That's how we're to pray for one another. Your son, your daughter, my brother, my sister, daddy, father needs you. They need you. That's who these people were. That's why he's praying for them. Now, that's certainly one part of the context. Another is where Paul was. These were hardly ideal circumstances. When you really pay attention to what's going on here in the, in the book and, and you read in later chapters and you synthesize that with the book of Acts, you realize Paul's in prison. He's not on a retreat. He's not in his study. He's in jail there in Rome. Now, you need to understand what that means. This is not an Amnesty International approved site. Prisons in the ancient world were dark, overcrowded, and you don't have some of the things that, that by law that we have today, 
in terms of the basic necessities like adequate clothing or bedding or even a chance to bathe. And if you're going to have decent food or water, it's going to come from friends on the outside who are willing to cross the boundaries and take the risk to bring it to you, who, by the way, are defying everybody who's encouraging them to disassociate themselves with prisoners. That's where Paul is. That's the context. That's the circumstances in which he's writing to these people. It was not ideal, and yet he is committed to pray for them. Again, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Skipping down again to verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Always, never ceasing. And he's not describing some kind of perpetual mystic experience, but rather he's saying, this is my posture. My posture is that of continual daily dependence upon the Lord in everything, including my intercession for you, and by the way, in my regular disciplined times of prayer with the Lord, I am praying to him for you. That's what he's saying. That's what he means when he speaks in such ways. So that's the context. That's the context of this prayer. Gives us an understanding of who these people were and why he's praying and where he was and his commitment to do that. Now, let's before we go to the second point, let's just think about it. Let's drill down here for just a minute and think about the implications of this. First, who they were. What does that tell us? It tells us at least this much. We, the circles that we operate under and how we identify who our people are are not nearly broad enough. According to Paul, it really has nothing to do, actually it absolutely has nothing to do, with what generation you are, what gender you are, what race you are, what class you are, who your daddy was, or what your upbringing was, or what your background was, or what political party you are. And that's important to remember as we move into this heated up election cycle And I ask you, are you comfortable with whoever's sticker shows up in that parking lot? Are you okay with that? Do you understand that what unites us as a family is none of those things that I just mentioned, but Jesus? There are no stickers in heaven. That's something that's worth very much worth our considering. Jesus is the one who founds the family. And if we're family, we should care for one another. And if we care for one another, we should be praying for one another, no matter what the other markers may be. That's the first thing, thinking about who we are. The second bit is also equally important, and that is where we are, our circumstances. Think about you know, how we need to expand our circles. Of apparently, the things that also dominate our attention need to be expanded as well. There are no excuses in terms of what our circumstances are for just continually neglecting to pray for those in need. Think about the misery of Paul's circumstances. He was not interested, he was not given towards the temptation that he knew and we know, towards just shutting down because of how hard things are. His attention is upon Jesus. He, he knows that, you know, you just in this fallen world, and Dave spoke to that in the, the leading up to Psalm 13, we cannot afford to wait for things to get better to then to be concerned about other people. That is an elusive, mobile mirage we're chasing after if that's what we're waiting for, to expand our circle of care and therein prayer. 
We have a tremendous privilege, a tremendous responsibility here, but a tremendous privilege as well when you consider that God in the wisdom and wonder of his ways is is said to us, in my eternal plans and purposes, I am going to take your prayers as a means towards those good and glorious ends. I don't understand that, but that's clearly what the Bible's showing us. You hear the privilege in that, that we get to participate in the unfolding of his good and glorious plans for us and those around us in prayer. In prayer. Jesus calls us to meet challenges to the gospel, all challenges to the gospel, with prayer shaped by the gospel. Well, that takes us then from the context of the prayer to the content. Uh, now, this is not going to be exhaustive. We're going to be kind of doing some summaries here, but let's go thinking about how, looking at how Paul here is, he begins with, in terms of content, expressing his deep, profound gratitude for God's work in the lives of these people. So we start in verses 3, and we read on through verse 8. Again, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul is just stunned. He is so deeply moved and grateful and thankful for what he is hearing, this report that is coming back to him through Epaphras of what's been going on there in Colossae of faith, love, and hope. So faith, not just generally speaking, not in the way we sadly in our culture often use the the, the term, but faith in, in, in an object, faith in the finished Work of Jesus, once for all and daily so. Faith, love, not just in terms of affection, but commitment, sacrifice, sacrificing one for another. Faith, love, rooted, grounded, flourishing out of, hope. And that's not in the way we use it either, in the sense of typically just kind of, well, I hope that happens, just sort of wishful thinking, but rather Biblically speaking, hope, hope is certainty waiting on something that just hasn't happened yet. It's like, I hope the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Well, yeah. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of hope, faith, love, hope. These things, these deep trans- this deep transformation that's taken place in the lives of these people and the gospel evidences of this love and faith and hope as well. The gospel, the truth, the message, he keeps stressing that because he needs to, even right there at the beginning and there in chapter one, has taken root in the lives of these people. They are disciples of Jesus. These people in Colossae have become disciples. They have heard Jesus's call upon their lives and responded by repenting and believing and following him. And that's only, only due to his grace and the work of, in, in their lives. It's taken, the gospel has taken root and therein it's bearing fruit. And it's the language that he's using there. Bearing fruit, not, just as it is wherever it goes and surely as it is in their own lives, fruit in terms of 
change that, that, that's going in terms of, of depth and, and breadth. And Paul is just undone, just, over, over, just overcome with gratitude and thanksgiving for what he can see God doing in the lives of these people. That's where he begins. Gratitude for God's work. And therein he asks for more. And therein he asks for more. Not out of discontentment, but out of concern. Because he knows what they're facing. He knows what's going on. He knows the danger that exists there in this heretical teaching. So we pick up there in verse 9. And so, you know, with everything else I've just said, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is so grateful for what the Lord is doing and therein asks for him to do yet more, building on this good beginning such that they, they, would, this, they would be able to endure the storm that is already upon them and is coming in yet more fury. He asks for yet more. A knowledge of God's will. He speaks of that. Now, that, by that, that language, he's, Paul is not speaking in terms of knowing exactly what his plans and purposes were for them in terms of what school should I go to, what job should I take, and who am I going to marry. That's not what he's thinking about at all when it comes to that language, uh, especially in this context. Nor is he speaking to insight into some theological construct. That's not what he's talking about either. He's speaking here, when you really look at it, and study this sort of thing, you begin to understand when he speaks of growing in the knowledge of God's will, he's speaking of growing in wisdom and understanding, growing in wisdom and understanding given to the disciple by the Spirit that then applies and goes into all of life. That's what Paul is asking the Lord to help them to grow in, the knowledge of God's will in that sense and that they would also live for Jesus. Not so that... They can earn his favor, but because they already have his favor. Uh, clearly, that's, that's what he means by, by that in terms of living a life that is pleasing and worthy of Jesus. Such a life is marked, four marks. You see it there in verses uh, 10 through 14. Bearing fruit, growing in knowledge, divine strengthening, humble thanks. All those things, could, a whole sermon, a four-part sermon could be on that. But all those things were already present in some measure but he longs to see them increase in their lives. He's giving thanks, but longs to see these things grow and flourish all the more. This is the content of Paul's prayer. He's so grateful, and he's asking for this good beginning, a building upon that, that good beginning, and thinking especially about what they're up against. William Carey. I'll tell you about William Carey for a moment if you don't know about him. He was uh, been called the father of the modern missionary movement. This is a moment in the life of William Carey in 1792. He had challenged his Baptist brethren to take the gospel to the unreached land. And so this organization was founded. I have to read this because it's too long to remember. The Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. I don't know what the acronym would be for that. <laughs> So that society was formed and appointed Carey and a guy by the name of John Thomas to go to India. 
They later came together about a year later for a farewell uh, meeting, a service, and sometime over the course of that all-day meeting, one of the guys there said this to, to William Carey. There is a gold mine in India, but it seems as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture to explore it? And this is what William Carey said in, in reply. I will go down, but you must hold the rope. I will go down, but you must hold the rope. And here's the question that is worth putting towards all of us at this point is thinking about Colossians 1. What would it mean for us to hold the rope in prayer as we think about people in their context suffering, struggling because of opposition of some kind, challenge of some kind to the gospel? What would it mean for us to hold the rope for them in prayer, as we see Paul doing for the Colossians and that commitment. Let me give you some examples. So perhaps we know of a church, and there's so many examples that we could give, churches in, in other lands, and we could pray perhaps something along these lines. Oh, God of all nations and peoples, you and your sovereign mercy are the one who turned the hearts of these dear, dear people, these brothers and sisters of ours, from their empty, vain, idolatrous ways, just as you have with us, but just in their context. You have helped them to see the emptiness, the futility of Islam or the tyranny of the communist or socialistic regime in which they live. You did that. Thank you. And now they're feeling the heat. Help them not to give up. Help them to hold on. Hold them and help them to hold on. That's one way. That's one area. How about um, a politician, perhaps, that you know of, whether in the local, state, or national level, who's a believer? It's not a friendly place to be, oftentimes, in that context. Lord, you are the king of the kings and the Lord of the lords. You are the one who appointed this brother or sister for such a time as this, to serve in such a place as this. They're trying to stand for justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's so hard. They're being besieged in so many different ways, in so many different fronts, tempted to give up, to compromise. Help them to stay strong and to trust you in the midst of this. How about a student? How about a soldier far away from home? How can you pray for them? Shepherd of the soul, mine and theirs. You brought them up. You raised them, not me, to know what's true and right. They know, but they're doubting. You are more real than their doubts. You are greater than their doubts. In your mercy, would you press in? Would you press in and make yourself loom larger than anything in their hearts? This is, that is the, all those and so many more. We could spend hours unpacking examples. 
But these are Colossian 1 ways of praying for people, as Paul did, experiencing challenges to the gospel. We are called to meet challenges to the gospel with prayer shaped by the gospel. Let me end with this. This is a little truism and then a story to explain it. Our response to a need needs to be fitted to the need. Now, you know that, right? That stands to reason. Our, your, our response to a need needs to be fitted to the need. So understand what the need is, and then you can move in with the proper response. So here's, here's a story, true story. Uh, news account from uh, just about a year ago, actually. A police dispatcher, Lafayette, Indiana, uh, kindness towards a caller that she, um, well, heard from. Antonia Bundy received a call from a child and asked what his emergency was. His problem was not the typical emergency Bundy normally deals with, but she still helped the boy out. You had a bad, bad day at school, Bundy asked, when the boy told her why he was calling. Yeah, I just came to tell you that, he said. When he told me he was having a bad day and I asked him what was troubling him, he told me that he had homework, Bundy told CBS affiliate WLFI-TV. And at that point, I was able to determine that it was more of a, I need help with homework than an actual emergency. Bundy was glad she wasn't too busy and she could focus on helping the boy with his homework. I've always been good at math. All the way through high school, I enjoyed it. So it was something that I was very happy I could help him with, she said. The boy read her the problem. What is three times four plus one times four? And Bundy walked him through the steps to solve it. She said the brief interaction was a nice break from her otherwise busy day. It kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. Not too much, but just a little bit to be able to relax and take a step back and truly figure out what he needed and truly spend time with him and assist him in the best way I could. Usually, the emergencies she deals with are much worse, so a math problem was a welcome change. The boy said that that was the only problem he needed help with, then thanked Bundy for her assistance. I'm sorry for calling you, but I really needed help, he told her. You're fine. We're always here to help, Bundy replied. Now, obviously, that young laddie does need to be corrected on what, when, and when is and isn't proper to call 911. This dispatcher needs to be not corrected, but commended, not only for her kindness, but for understanding the nature of the need. You notice she didn't just immediately call the EMTs and send them to the house. She assessed what the need was and responded in a way that was appropriate and fitted to that need. All right, that makes sense. The church around this globe in so many different ways, overt, covert, obvious, not so much, nonetheless, and here, in our own context, faces challenge to the gospel. We need to respond in the right way to that need. It is not a political need. It is not really a financial need. It is a spiritual need. And so therein we need to respond in a way that is fitted to the need. Not, certainly not, uh, in ways that would, you know, in our thoughts, our words, and deed that would belie any claim of love of Jesus, but rather in ways that would speak to Faith, love, and hope. The very things Paul was commending and praying for in the lives of these people. We are called to meet challenges to the gospel by praying 
in ways that are shaped by the gospel. So let's pray. Let's pray now. Lord Jesus, we see challenges to your kingdom rule, and of course they're futile because you are the king. Ultimately, we know that any challenge to the gospel is absolutely futile, but they're real nonetheless. Persecution, corruption, division, distraction. It can happen anytime, anywhere, any place, and is. In the, larger, in the larger body of any local church, and of course it begins with any of us, anywhere, as individuals. And Lord, as we face such challenges, we ask that you'd help us to respond in the way that you're showing us here in your word. Not in fear, not in, in foolishness, but in prayer engages and intercedes and entrusts. We pray this, asking that you would help us to pray in your name. Amen.